Hi, this is Against Everyone with Connor Abib, a weekly podcast featuring my conversations with countercultural figures and presenting complex spiritual, philosophical, and political ideas in an engaging, accessible, and fun way. This week, my guest is Lisa Romero, and we'll be talking about an occult picture of sexuality. Um, we could just sort of say this is an episode about sex and the occult. Um, I'm very excited to present this episode to you because uh, while sex and sexuality and the occult are all major themes in the way I think and sort of look at the world and approach the world, um, I haven't really talked about these topics directly. So they come in in a sideways manner, but not in a direct manner. And so I asked Lisa to join me. Lisa is the author of many books, um, but the one that really makes her appropriate for this episode is Sex Education and the Spirit, Understanding Our Communal Responsibility for the Healthy Development of Gender and Sexuality Within Society. Um, she is in the same current spiritually as me, so uh, it's easy for me to have these conversations with her in a way that, um, you know, there'd be a lot of sort of dancing around terms and understanding what the spiritual ground is for us uh, to talk about sex with other people, um, because Lisa is also really invested in the occult tradition of anthroposophy, uh, generated, explored by, revealed by, whatever word you want to use, uh, Rudolf Steiner. Now, um, Lisa and I also, you know, can go really deep, um, and since we're both used to sort of presenting these things to people that don't necessarily believe in all the uh, things that we believe in, et cetera, et cetera. We also um, make sure everything is broken down in an understandable way. Uh, we talk about what a non-materialistic view, rather a spiritual view of sex looks like. Um, we talk about uh, the evolution of consciousness in relation to sex, the scientific definition of sex and why that matters now, um, how a Christian occultist, uh, which is ultimately what... Uh, anthroposophy and Rudolf Steiner's work is, it's a sort of Christianized occultism, but Christianity and Christ means something completely different in this context than you might be used to. A Christianized occultist approach to sex never takes the form of don't do this, do this, don't do this, don't do this. It's not prescriptive in that way. Um, different levels of attraction as they relate to different subtle bodies. Um, and of course, I sneak in a little bit of Sigmund Freud and Jacques Lacan, um, which is not something that gets brought up in relation to these uh, spiritual discussions uh, in general. So um, I am so excited to share this with you. So Lisa and I go really deep into the topic, and uh, but as the mission of every episode of the show is, we also keep things uh, really accessible. So um, you might find yourself resisting in certain places because we're using vocabulary or uh, just sort of agreeing on terms with each other, but that's what exactly what allows us to go deeper on the subject is that that groundwork and that fundamental aspect of uh, our perspectives is lined up and using the same vocabulary. So don't worry, we explain all the terms to you as we go. Well, I think most of them... Um, and uh, I think that you'll get a lot out of this. I know I did. Um, it really went to places that no other episode of this show so far has gone for me. And this episode is also audio only. Usually I record with a camera 
and video um, and audio, and then I put up the video just for patrons, etc. But my microphone that I attached to my camera was broken, um, and well, it is still is broken. So uh, I could only do audio only with a different microphone. Um, that said, uh, I think the sound turned out really well, except there's this rumbling sometimes, and there were lots of people walking around, and uh, the table that we were sitting at was a little creaky, and I would really ultimately like to get better audio recording equipment for the show. Um, so, uh, first of all, two things. One, are you cool with it just being audio? Um, I think it would make things a lot easier for me and my guests if it was just audio. <laughs> um, and I will still continue to record in person because I think that that really brings something to the conversations that a lot of other shows don't have um, when they're recorded over the phone or over Skype or whatever. Uh, there's a kind of warmth there. But uh, are you okay with just audio? And the second thing is, um, please do support this show on Patreon. <laughs> it's patreon.com forward slash Connor Adib. I'm getting lots and lots of new listeners, which is awesome, especially after doing the Blind Boy podcast recently in Ireland and sort of opening up to a European audience. And also before that, uh, doing the episodes with Daniel Joseph and Duncan Trussell and Abby Martin. All those have brought a, a, a wave of new listeners. Um, so if you are a new listener and you like the show, please do support it, patreon.com forward slash Connor Deeb. It'll help me get better recording equipment. Um, and if you're a long-time listener and you have not decided to pay for the podcast, just ask yourself, you know, when I like something, when I like what somebody is doing, if I met that person, would I buy them a donut? <laughs> But I buy them uh, a cup of coffee, a latte, or whatever. You just contribute on that level each month and get everything back um, that you get from the benefit tier that you're on. There are lots of different things. There's uh, a salon uh, online where I meet with a community of patrons and we talk about different topics. The one coming up uh, in May is on Utopia, but we've done other ones on Rudolf Steiner, on psychoanalysis. Um, and so forth. Uh, you can get curated lists. I'm not going to go through all the benefits. You can just go to patreon.com forward slash Connor and see what they are. But I think most importantly, it's just, you know, this idea of pay for your podcast. If you like the podcast, pay for it. You know, these other kind of podcast networks are signing, are, are uh, showing up that are paying people who already have a lot of money for their podcast. So you'll see what I mean. These new podcast networks uh, that are kind of like Netflix of podcasts and they're paying the podcasters a ton of money. Um, and a lot of those people already have a lot of money um, for other efforts or they're celebrities and that's why they're on these networks. Someone who's running a really small scale outfit like me, even though I have my own platform, um, I rely completely on people that listen to the show. So patreon.com forward slash Connor Abib. All right. And also, if, if you're sick of this intro, um, just know that you can always skip past it. Um, <laughs> so I know that like I, I go on and on about things right in the beginning of the show, but it's, one, not as long as the ones where you have to listen to ads for Squarespace and Audible and all that kind of stuff. Um, but two, uh, also, you can just skip past it. Um, just to advance past it. But the best thing to do would be to go to patreon.com forward slash Connor Deeb and contribute today. And once I hit a certain level, I probably won't be saying these things at the beginning of the episodes anymore. All right, that's it. 
I'm so excited to share this episode uh, with Lisa Romero and me in conversation about sex and the occult. Hi, everybody. It's Against Everyone with Connor Beeb. I'm so excited to be here with Lisa Romero. Hi. Hi there. <laughs> um, one of the reasons why I'm so excited to be with you, I said in uh, my introduction to the show, is that there aren't a lot of people who are sort of at least in the same book, if not on the same exact page as me, uh, when it comes to sex and sexuality and spirituality. Um, I think one of the reasons why is that we have people who enter into uh, spirituality with all the sort of inherited ideas and concepts they have about sex. Whereas sex itself, when you look at it from a non-materialistic perspective, demands us to ask, what are you? What is sex? What, what are you? Rather than just assuming, because even in sort of secular culture, there's not really very much of a definition of what sex is, which is very interesting considering how much we sort of mull it over and go through it. So I think that you've done a lot of work trying to answer that question in light of the spiritual tradition and practice that you are most engaged with, which is anthroposophy, which is developed by Rudolf Steiner. Anybody who listens to the show knows who he is by now because I don't shut up about him. Um, so... Maybe we can start there, actually, with this question of what is sex? And we don't have to answer it because it's a mystery, you know. But um, let, maybe let's let's start there. Yeah, that's a great question because in a certain way, when we ask that question, we are, you know, I'm really struck by Steiner's ability to show us that the human being is evolving. And if there is this evolution of our consciousness, then there possibly is also our evolution of our sexuality. Mm -hmm. So we might have to ask the question, what is sex now? And mm. I think as you began, a lot of people in a way want to carry old processes, handed down ideas of sexuality into this moment. But actually, if we're working with an evolution of consciousness, we have to say, in this age, in our present times, what is sexuality compared to the past, perhaps, but actually, what is it in a living way now for us as human beings? And that is something that I've found in, you know, in the various cosmologies that one looks into, Steiner describes the evolution of consciousness in a way that no one else does. And what's particularly extraordinary that he says it's not just the evolution of the human's consciousness, but the evolution of way the spiritual world participates in mm. our evolution. Mm. Mm. And so the archetype that we are living within our age is that the spiritual world is seeking us to become deeply individuated so that we have individual freedom in all we're in relationship to 
Yeah. Yeah. Can I just, I just want to add there, yeah. you know, it's, it's one of the things I've said it before on the show, but sort of my tagline is if you ever want to know how someone feels about freedom, start talking about sex. And I think that that is because for me, well, in a secular way, you could say someone can talk about politics all day and how much they think everybody deserves, you know, autonomy and freedom and all that sort of stuff. But then, you know, you're walking down the street with them and they point out someone that they find attractive that you don't. And you're like, ugh, him or her? Like Mm -hmm. the other person becomes completely not understandable to you in the sort of nexus of their desires, which is a combination of their body type, where they grew up, who they were, you know, spiritually, if you want to say who they were in a past life, their culture, their uh, ethnic and racial uh, identity, um, what their parents raised them with. It's this weird knot of all these things. And it relates to another human being who also has that sort of unique tangle. Um, and so when you sort of get down to it, you notice how much about the individual sex is. And actually, there's a thing where Rudolf Scheiner says something about sex being the lowest thing that there is about a human, and not low as in uh, low as in bad, but or, or, or lesser than, but rather that it's all here, like mm-hmm. it's all in us in, yeah, in yeah, a way. Yeah. And and I so I think that you know this for me is the question of freedom and compassion in our time is this sexual question about sex and sexual identity and so also um so you your way of saying oh this is about um what is sex now right and we can have still even trying to say now we can have a lot of different answers and we have to look to the answers of the past so maybe let's talk about the answers of what sex was or <laughs> what it was in our imagination first. Maybe we can start with that because I think we still are really clinging to the idea of sex as a procreative act, which the vast majority of sex acts are not procreative. <laughs> I mean, most of them are not. So, But yet we identify it as the core of that, and that's interesting to me. And perhaps that's because in, if we look at Rudasteiner's image of, um, you know, through his book Cosmic Memory, we see that the origins of sexuality began to procreate. Hmm. But it's not what sex is necessarily about now. However, when you add this element of freedom in, then... Hmm. Often when you say, you know, sex is about freedom, we assume we're talking about being incredibly liberal and um, Mm. free sexually. But actually freedom really means is that I can begin to understand your point of view, which may be vastly different from my point of Mm -hmm. view. Mm -hmm. And that Aristotelian image that the opposite point of view is the other half of the truth Mm -hmm. can become something that... We can say, can can I allow someone else's expression around sexuality, around gender, around whatever it is, to be very different from mine and still completely okay? Now, in order for us to do that, we have to have individuated, actually have become really a, a autonomous being in relationship to those things ourselves before we can deeply accept that in another human being. Mm-hmm. And as we stand on this cusp of um, shift in the realm of gender and sexuality, the tendency is people wanting to find other people that 
they belong to. Mm-hmm. And the human being mm. is not like the animal kingdom, a species of groups of people anymore. In the evolution of consciousness, you could say you are your own species. So each of us is going to have a very unique individuated relationship to sex, to our relationship mm. to spirituality. But it is in the deep coming to know that, understand that, accept accept that for ourselves. Can we, in a way, allow somebody to have a completely different experience of that? So when I talk about freedom of sexuality, I don't mean that means everybody needs to be able to have sex in public. Not at all. Because... Just me. Yeah, you can do that. (laughs) But I can perceive your point of view and see that that may be progressive for you, but it may not be progressive for me. Right. And that comes to then to this wonderful question. If I individuate, come to know really myself, think through, unpick all that handed down mm-hmm. ideas of who I should be on any level of being, I can allow that in you and then we can come to a very different relationship of community. Yeah, well, so there's so much there in what you said. So, um, so for, first, so I want to get back to this question of uh, allowing in the other the not understandable, and that that has to happen through going through our own processes inwardly. Yeah. But let me start with going back to an old story about sex, which is it, it's still with us, and we still hold on to it. That um, the scientific narrative about sex, I find it very interesting. It, the, the, the definition is really like a, an exchange of genomic material. Yeah, That's right. basically it from one to another. So it's, it, it's somehow reproductive, but also it's even sort of less than reproductive when you talk about it. So an old story about sex is viruses, which are not really alive, uh, so to speak. They, they join with living things and begin to develop a sort of life-like kind of property, um, but on their own are not exactly alive. In the sort of pre-life uh, narrative of biology, viruses would dissolve and part of their genome would go into another virus, right? So though this is the scientific narrative, there's something really interesting there because you say, what, which came first, the chicken or the egg? And the answer is sex because sex actually predates the idea of what life is on this planet. So there's a sort of active kind of relationship of sharing that predates any sort of bodily form that we ever talk about. So even if you don't accept the scientistic materialistic mm-hmm. narrative, you can still gain something from looking at that perspective and saying, wow, there's an active exchange that is part of humanity and our story and and our development here that has to do with sex in a way. So before I get to the other stuff, maybe I should step back and if you want to comment on that, (laughs) you can. Well, it's interesting because then we're taking the science from this point of view of the procreative uh, necessity, which... From Steiner's um, deep work on what happened before then, there Mm -hmm. was a point when the human being didn't actually need another being Mm -hmm. to procreate. Mm -hmm. And there will be a point in the future Mm -hmm. where a human being won't need another human being to procreate. So we're picking up this, uh, uh, this picture at a certain point in time. And science is very interesting on one level because it can give us an understanding of certain aspects of our 
humanness. Mm -hmm. But it's not necessarily quantifiable by our experience. So, for instance, the science tells us that we all know if we're sexually attracted to someone within the first three minutes. Mm -hmm. But you know, as I know, you can know someone for years and then suddenly have sexual attraction that was never there before. So the science really only... um, can identify a particular what we might term as sheath or mm. aspect to the human makeup and actual um, sexual attraction or attraction to another human being is incredibly complex. Yeah, well, I mean, I, you're you're tapping on something that I've... So I did an episode of this show called R... It was just me, a solo episode, but it was called R-A-R-E, Our Bodies, Ourselves, right? So yeah. like the play on that classic book our bodies ourselves but the idea was to show how sex actually and desire really refuted the idea of materialism if you just looked at them closely enough so one of the ways in which we say is like why are we attracted why are straight identified men attracted to breasts like female breasts there's no real reason why it should be you know you can explain this in a lot of ways well it has something to do with the nursing memory and all that kind of stuff well but then why am i not attracted to like women changing my diaper or like you know what i mean or like or why why are people attracted to feet in such a huge number um there's no real explanation for that but if you want to get more uh intense about it people who uh are sexually assaulted and raped will often if it's a man have an erection if it's a woman sometimes they'll have an orgasm so you can see the complete split between bodily arousal and actual inner desire Mm -hmm. in those moments Mm -hmm. and we don't allow ourselves to talk about that In, in fact we're so threatened to say like oh someone who was assaulted might have experienced bodily arousal it almost sounds like an offensive thing to say as if you're blaming the 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 victim or saying oh they really liked it but all you're really saying is the material aspect of the situation is not what we're looking at to determine violation right so that in itself can show that these sorts of this there's a departure point from the materialistic explanation of how sex and desire and arousal all work and you can just see it in these extreme cases Absolutely. In fact, this is one of the things that I talk to young people about a lot when around actually understanding this bodily vehicle and its nature to to work in a certain way and then who you are as an individual and what you want to do with the vehicle that you're working in. Mm. And, you know, as Plato said, you know, be the chariot rider and not the horse. Mm-hmm. And in a certain sense, in order to not be the horse, we need to know how to bring about a certain mastery of that but you can't do that when you're younger. And so it can happen hmm. that a young, you know, young 13-year-old who, you know, every time they ejaculate, they're ejaculating over 200 million sperm. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's quite a procreative uh-huh. force. <laughs> and I often talk about that as 200 million cheerleaders, you uh-huh. know, that are really determined to move outside the body. Uh-huh. And so that young uh-huh. person may be forced to give their 40-year-old aunt a hug, someone that they don't have any attraction to. Mm-hmm. And would actually think they're actually quite disgusting in the way of attractiveness. And yet, they may get a biological response. Their penis might not get full-blown erection, but the blood flow, a little tweak of, uh uh-oh. And just because of skin-on-skin contact. Mm -hmm. And it can be really 
disturbing for young people to think what is wrong with me i must be sick in the head you know to have sexual response physiologically Mm -hmm. to something that appears to be against one's own intentions Mm -hmm. so i often say to young people you have to work out is this your will or your willy right 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 (laughs) (laughs) because we're not just we're not just (laughs) the biology yeah and that's very clear. And more today, and I'm blown away by how many people are able to actually perceive that for themselves, this new generation. Hmm. It's very clear that they can have a sexual experience or hmm. a, a awakening towards someone, but have no desire for anything other than a physical connection. And then yet somebody else they may have a deep crush on, but have no sexual mm-hmm. connection to. Yeah, that I mean, that's that's really fascinating. I want to talk about that too. And I just want to say, like, the there's this flip side, right, of, like, a lot of people who en- end up later identifying as gay um, or lesbian, right, their bodies will tell them something before the rest of their being knows it, mm-hmm. right? So, like, they'll be aroused by, uh, you know, for, for me, I had always sort of wondered why... Why do I want, like, I kept thinking about having, like, a brother. That was, like, the question. Like, why do I not have a brother? Like, I have a brother, but he's 13 years older than me, mm-hmm. you know. At, at the time I was experiencing this, I had a, a, a half-brother who was 13 years older than me. I now have a half-brother who's younger than me, too. But I was, like, but I want someone that's close to my age that I can spend a lot of time with. That And I would feel this yearning. And then when I would see certain men, I would get aroused. And I didn't understand what that was. But my body knew in some way before I did because... I started masturbating before I added pictures to it, you know, mm-hmm. so a lot of, you know, if you're not using pornography, you masturbate with, you know, you imagining whatever scenario you're imagining. But I started masturbating before I started imagining anything. And then the first time I really imagined something was after seeing my stepbrother's friend behind a clouded shower door and I was like electrified and I started masturbating thinking that I still do sometimes and I was like (laughs) very young but it was so potent you know and so that like my body led me to something that I could not have discovered without the physical aspect of me too so there's that wisdom there as well but it just shows all the different layers of our being interacting to lead us you know yeah yeah and in a way we're fortunate if the different layers of our being can be on the same page Mm -hmm. the most complex and difficult experience a human being has is when different aspects of their being are working in a different way Mm -hmm. so i've had young people say i hate that i'm gay and it's not because the world hates it I had a different idea of myself. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And of course then I have other people that realise that it's actually been a social conditioning and the liberation of that changes everything. But, you know, some people have it easy in the sense their attraction physically, their attraction socially, their attraction emotion- emotionally, their attraction on an individual to individual level all lines up. Right. <laughs> Others really don't. And it's actually that wow. complexity that often we don't understand another human being because of that. We don't understand that they could be very different and it be very true. We often think the way that we experience something is the truth that other people are carrying or denying. Mm-hmm. But in reality, we are much more individual and complex than I think we have even begun to recognize yeah well I think that that sort of um, traces back into the 
individual, uh, the individuated um, being and how the experiences are all sort of different f for us. So I, whenever I say the comment I'm about to say, people feel very relieved by it, it seems, which is two people can do the same exact sexual act. And so say someone likes, I'm just going to choose something that to mainstream listener sounds extreme. The same someone likes being flogged, all right, mm -hmm. as a sexual act. One person might experience that as a completely cathartic, healthy expression of working through and understanding and pleasurable. And another person doing the same exact act might be reenacting and reengaging with trauma. And you can't tell from looking at the act from the outside. So that's another way in which it kind of refutes materialism. The acts from the outside are not right. what tell us whether or not the act is healthy. And we know this in our sexual lives. We can see people that engage with their sexual lives very freely and happily, and that we can see other people doing the exact same thing who are just being yeah. tortured around those acts, you know? Exactly. And so I think that's in itself also just shows us, okay, um, when you and I talk about uh, this esoteric occult perspective that is really uh, inter interwoven with a Christian perspective, when we talk about a Christianized spiritual perspective on sex, it's not prescriptive in don't do these acts. That's not, that's not what a Christian act or a Christian approach to sex means. It means what is your engagement with the act giving you in terms of your sense of freedom, uh, your development, um, your relationship with uh, the spiritual landscape, that sort of stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. You don't need to. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> yeah, and I think this is, I mean, look, you say it from the point of view of sexuality and we could say it from the point of view of many things. You know, someone can look at the rising sun and one person can be so moved by it that it gives <laughs> them a kind of strength for mm -hmm. the day. Another person could look at it and be like, well, you know, if there was a bit more purple over there. Mm -hmm. And become so intellectualized by the picture and someone else actually doesn't even let it enter in <laughs> so who you are where you stand in yourself actually changes your relationship to every process right and of course um sexuality is one where if you have not inquired into who you are and where you stand in yourself you're more likely to just live out patterns than if you've made that inquiry. Because in the re realm of sexuality, it seems to me we get a lot of hand-me-downs. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Whereas in the realm of, say, looking at art, we are um, there's something in us that has to come into relationship with it. We yeah. can't be told how to have a relationship to art. We can be told how to have a relationship to sex. And this is something that um, Rudolf Steiner gave this image that by the age of six years old, we're actually conditioned by the collective consciousness of the community that we're born into. And I find that extraordinary <laughs> as a picture that, you know, we know that in many traditions, give me the boy for seven years and I'll show you the man, you know, mm -hmm. the image that what happens in that first seven years of life is like a inscription from the community on how you should live and see some of the social norms 
And of course, as we develop this individuation and we come into relationship to this inscription, which is not us, which is actually coming from the connection to the community we're born into, then we can see this new battle arising between who are we as individuals and what is being handed mm. down to us. Mm -hmm. You could say the hereditary and the individuality meet in every human being and it's up to us to try and take the next step forward to progress. Yeah, I mean, I think I, I, I think maybe you would take issue with this, but I, but I frame all that as karma. You know, I, you know, I, just for when I'm talking to people, especially if they're not uh, sort of spiritually minded, I just say, well, just think it's like everything that you're born into, all and all the laws of nature. Um, that's actually those are karmic forces in some way and that really like you know when we act when we think with intention and think about and through our thinking in a living way when we act with uh, purpose and when we feel with some kind of purity and clarity then we rise above or, or above is maybe not the right word but it's sort of like the seal with its head above the surface of the water you poke up a, above the the field of karma and then usually you just go right back down into it but yeah. this like succession uh, it b brings a different kind of way of being to you so i would call those forces for people that might be interested in using the word karmic forces because they're the gra they're gravity it's like the laws of gravity they yeah. pull on us yeah, yeah. you know to sort of reduce our optionality in some in some way whereas you know was that famous well, famous, but there's a Rudolf Steiner quote which really was just so profound for me when I heard it, which is, you know, man could have said human, but we know what he means. Man is not on, man is not free, but on the way to becoming free, you yeah, know. And so absolutely. that's the process of striving to be to be free, and not not like thinking that you have to resolve determinism versus free will, but rather, no, freedom is something that's still becoming for us. Absolutely. Yeah. And that, that in a way is why we have to really ask that question, how do I take my next step, my progress towards freedom, knowing that I bear this load of karma from where I've incarnated into that has something to do with my a potential to transform mm -hmm. so we come under different biographical experiences into different communities but it also that difficulty can be the place of which we grow the most dynamically into our liberation mm -hmm. yeah and and so i think that sex has a really special place in that as we were saying before with the sun people aren't saying well you better like that sunset or you better not well they tell you not to stare into the sun which actually <laughs> i used to do as a kid i mean before i was even seven i would stare at the sun because people told me not to which is just ridiculous <laughs> you know me you now you know i would of course do something like that it didn't make me blind by the way I, not that i'm recommending it to the people that are listening but they but, you know no one's like condemning you for looking at the sun really and so Sex has a special part to play, partially because of the challenge that it has, that our culture is constantly bringing towards it. And so I want to talk about how it's manipulated then, because the ways in which it's manipulated are very rarely about sex itself, which is really interesting to me. So like if we talk about the Council of Trent and during the Reformation, um, 
you know, during one of the sessions of the Council of Trent, which happened over, I think, over a hundred years, actually. But so the Council of Trent is a really long time. But during the during the um, clashes between the Protestants and the Catholics, the Protestants said, "Well, look, you Catholics, you're too." Uh, you're too obsessed with the body and that's why, you, and, and you're too obsessed with earthliness and look, you have all these pictures of naked people in their bodies. So that's, you know, they became literally iconoclastic. They started destroying, you know, the Catholic church's icons and stuff. And the Catholic church was like, whoa, no, we got to reclaim our power. So they painted towels over all the genitals and like the frescoes and stuff, which only in the eighties were started to be scraped off again and re and restored. But that wasn't about sex per se. That was about two con powers in conflict that one of them utilized sexuality and the genitals, which have, of course, probably seen a little differently back then, but utilized that to uh, achieve another aim. And I feel like that's when we look at almost anything with sexuality or sex or the way it's condemned or prescribed or controlled, mediated, it's usually about something else, which is very interesting to mm. me. Why is it this leverage point? Do you think? Yeah, well, I I think that in a way, as you know, as Stanley gives this quote, he says, "Without sense-born love, nothing would arise <laughs> in in world evolution." Huh. Um, but he also says, "Without spiritual love, nothing would arise in the spiritual world as a progressive force." Hmm. And so, sense-born to to dominate sense-born love, sense-born love would be to dominate the future manifestation. So, of course, mm, it's a mm. huge currency. It's a huge currency. However, I also want to add to this picture that we assume, though, in the liberation of sexuality, everybody would be highly sexual beings. Right, right. <laughs> and yet, yeah. you know, I often use this analogy that there are some people in the world that get hangry. You know that term, uh -huh. hangry. You're hungry, you get angry. Uh -huh. And there are other people in the world who have no idea what that means uh -huh. they can fast and have no inner right but they nothing. might get horny which is angry when they're horny <laughs> exactly <laughs> so we, the thing about sexuality of course is that it is incredibly varied in the way it wants to express and many people in mm. your shoes will often think that it's suppressed and mm. if it is liberated it would be this dominant vital process in someone's life actually it's not that that, that for everybody right yeah. for some people it's really just a take it or leave it some people like that with food some people are like oh i have to eat and others of us are like what <laughs> right, what right. others of us have like <laughs> chocolate smeared on our mouth gummy bears stuck to our yeah and our i clothes. don't think we really <laughs> recognize that sex has a very similar process some uh -huh. people do not revel for sex it's just one of those things right Take it or leave it. And it's not to do with an outer suppression. Of course it can be because you've got that layer. So that's why we really need an individual inquiry because right. you do need to see what you've been handed down. But it also is also okay for you to not feel like it's an important, significant part of your life. Yeah, I mean, it's a big problem with the sex positive movement, which I am very grateful that that movement exists. But you're right, like there's a default idea, right? Yeah, yeah, and, right. And, you know, so, and, and it, be, it can become as prescriptive as anything else. Exactly. The real problem, and the thing that they've done, which is really good, is say, basically, 
although I don't think they articulate it this way, is how would you even know what you wanted sexually in this culture? How do you even know? Because yeah, yeah. you're constantly bombarded with the, with the idea that the only thing to do is either hate sex or be okay with it when it tells you to be a consumer, essentially. Yeah, right. And so... You, you know, it's it's so the the default is always that this is bad. Even even as we get into what people call hypersexual culture, I don't think it's hypersexual. Yeah, I think right. it's hyper aroused, but not exactly sexual. So yeah, yeah. people have to sort of sort through this kind of stuff. And then, you know, the way I say it is like what we need to do is understand that sex is completely neutral part of life, just like anything else. And we have to go through and just say, you know, not 90% of my work is like a sexual figure in the world is to show people that sex is no big deal. And then after you pass through that eye, you can start saying what's distinct and, uh, and important about it. But you first have to realize that it's not important or distinct from anything else. Then on the other side of that, then you can do the work of establishing for yourself what is important, what is distinct, what is powerful, all that kind of stuff about it. But you kind of have to level it because most of the, your ideas about it are not yours, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, this is interesting because, you know, when Rudolf Steiner talks about taking hold of our own development, as a Western esotericist, it means that you don't have a guru or a master that he's standing there ordering the process for you mm. that you actually have to be the eye to your own transformation and not place that outside of you mm-hmm. and because of that we have this picture that we take hold of first our um inner world in how we think how we feel what we do which is actually a, a certain aspects of the human being when we've managed to take hold of that with a certain level of self-directiveness, then we take hold of the conditioned self. Mm-hmm. When we've taken hold of that, then we penetrate down into the biological self. Mm. Now, that's actually a different process, working from the eye consciousness into the inner realm of experience, into the conditioned, handed-down hereditary, into the impulses of my biology. In, for instance, the Eastern path, when we're talking about working with the Kundalini or the uh, traditions that worked with sexuality, they had a guru standing on side so that when that force was transformed in you, all of the uh, processes it had to break through, someone else could manage that. Okay, wait, let me just stop and pull back a little bit because I don't think people, I I think a lot... I've read some of your writing about Uh this and, you know, I have a lot of background so I could understand, but maybe let's break it down a little bit more because it's clear to me, but I just want to make sure it's clear to the people that are totally unfamiliar. So maybe just, maybe just like, uh, let's, let's, let's kindergarten that up a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's just, let's look at in the four levels of attraction. Okay. So let's start, we have that physiological, biological attraction. We talk about that as the physical Yes. Body that we can all quantify and the sciences can research. Yes. But then we have an attraction which is a social conditioned attraction. Mm-hmm. You know, we see that changing. You know, at the moment, big bottoms are in and, you know, they weren't in and then this is in <laughs> and then this not in and mm-hmm. abs are in and then skin is in. Mm-hmm. And actually, it affects the attractiveness in a conditioned way. Mm-hmm. And that can come down to all sorts of things, not just the look of somebody, but there's a social attraction. 
then we have this this desire or this falling in love crushing thing and that's for me an extraordinary thing that that can start consciously as young as nine years old Mm -hmm. you can actually have deep crushes on somebody now that's a different part of our being we would talk about that as our inner world that feeling experience in life can go in a very different direction than our biological physiological attraction Mm -hmm. so biology physiology social conditioned attraction and then we have this other realm. And then we have this interesting thing which is to do with individual attraction where you're attracted to somebody because you become more because in relationship to who that individual is, your, mm-hmm. your world grows. Mm-hmm. So that complexity of attraction comes from these different aspects of the human being. That I development where I, I evolve because I know you is the awakening that then has to look at my inner world of crushing, falling in love, desire, Mm. wanting, not wanting. And I first, in the Western esoteric path, take hold of, meaning I come to understand, come to know, come to know myself as a being that has these things and where have they come from? You know, where does these desires arise from in myself? (laughs) Once I've actually got a sense of what's living in me, I can then penetrate the conditioning that was handed down from the collective community. Mm -hmm. But how do I penetrate a conditioning if I haven't sorted what's mine, what's not mine? Right. Well, can I just interject here real quick? Is it really interesting? Is this something that being in... uh that doing sex work and being in porn really cleared up for me was the social conditioning. Yeah. Because I was getting paid to have sex with the people that were considered the most attractive. So Mm -hmm. I was getting paid for that. So then when I would go to the bar and some guy with big biceps and abs would walk in and everybody would do what my my ex-boyfriend called prairie dogging where you just sort of like, (laughs) like everybody like look, turns their head and looks at the door simultaneously like in alert when this guy walks in. It would have no effect on me because I was already engaged with that in a way like it had a place to go sort of. And so I began to become more and more in touch with the people that I would say I was more naturally attracted to. It started to clear things up. Now, naturally attracted, I still had stuff to investigate there, but it had shaken off the social condition and brought me to a different level. And so that there's this great thing where Rudolf Steiner, in conjunction with this um, French these French philosophers, uh, Gilles Deleuze and Félix Guattari, they also say something very similar, which is like, sometimes you need to uh, like really exacerbate and then exasperate um, something to be able to sort of leave it and get get out and stand outside and look in. In some ways, you want to agitate the sense world as much as possible. I mean, I've only read Steiner say that in one place, so I don't know how much that's in his work. It might have come with caution in that particular lecture or something. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But um, Deleuze and Guattari call it um, a line of flight. You know, at a certain point, you reach such a velocity with some phenomenon in your life that, like, you then stand outside of it and you can reflect on it. And that is what a lot of, a lot, I've learned so much from sex work that that's one of them where it just sort of put me in the realm so much with that social conditioning that I was able to look upon it and say, huh, I guess that doesn't affect me in the same way anymore. Yeah. And yet, you you know, you said it yourself earlier that because of who you are mm. you went into the sex work and it became this living learning right. dynamic which has deepened your understanding 
someone else, it can become a a barrage of pain. Right. And so who you are going into it and how you what you can gain from it really is the the ground of which I work from because every aspect of our mm. life is dependent on where you stand in yourself in yeah. going into it. Now, I would say that Steiner, and I can actually give you a quote from Steiner to kind of va- not validate but don- help us understand what you just spoke about there, um, where he, he, he brings an image, if I can find it. Why, can, can I say something while yeah. you try to find it? Which is that it. the... Oh, now you found it. Go ahead. Okay, you it says... Sensual love also gradually leads to the highest, purest spiritual love. The soul should transform and order all experiences and then bear them up to the altar of spirituality. Mm -hmm. For nothing, absolutely nothing, is lost. Sensuousness is a score without which the human being would never come to spirituality. (laughs) The earth is no veil of tears. It is a gathering place. (laughs) I I love it. And, And... I love that quote. I, I've read that book of yours and I love that quote. And, and I will often say, you know, sex is a mystery. It's a real mystery, meaning that you can always learn more from it than you can about it. It's always a step ahead of you. And that's in that quote, which is essentially love is a school. It's a school. It, when people ask me, you know, well, how do I learn about sex or what, whatever? I'm always well, you have sex and then you pay attention. Like sex is the teacher, you know, it's a greater teacher than I could ever be, but you do have to develop the capacity to pay attention and to sort through. So then going back to you saying, well, this is, that's you coming to these experiences as the person that you are able to sort of sort through the sex work in that way. My big hope is that by doing that, I can make that more available to others. First of all, by speaking about it and saying, have you all, notice that these are the experiences you're having when you're having sex but especially to sex workers like here's how you can view some of these experiences and be more healthy in them and and be more grounded in them and sort your way through but then also i think just there's the whole i mean i don't like the way he frames it but the whole sort of rupert sheldrake morphogenic field kind of thing which has a better explanation than anthroposophy but it's more complicated if i achieve it it becomes available to others. You know, yeah. if I speak it and achieve it, it becomes more available to others. So yeah. that's my big hope with the sort of sex work public persona project yeah. is to make what I've sorted through, which is at times for me even very painful, very difficult, very dark, very unilluminated, then available, you know, yeah, yeah. to others. Yeah. But I like the way you put it. It's a, it is a schooling or you could say it's the a class within the great school of life. Mm-hmm. Not everyone's going to be taking that class. Right. <laughs> but those that do are going to get a lot out of understanding it. Mm. And we assume everybody is signed up for the sex class. Mm. And that's where I also like to say that actually for some people that it's just not a class they need to take in the curriculum for their development. Mm. For others it's incredibly important. And our mm. ability to allow each other to have incredibly opposite points of view on that is what actually develops this other aspect of our freedom and that is out of my freedom can I live in community with other human beings that are very different from me mm-hmm. I think this is like I actually from talking with you many times now I wonder if this is a little point of departure for us actually yeah, yeah. <laughs> not disagreement exactly mm. but because I'm sort of like Freud Lacan psychoanalysis minded I 
don't know that people get to not take the class. In in other words, everyone has to do English and math, right? Yeah, I think everybody. <laughs> yes, exactly. I think everybody struggles with it. So they're in the class whether they realize they're in the class or not. And also, we're all made out of the class, right? We're all, we're yeah, all yeah. we all have our own personal Big Bang, you know, as it were. Yeah. <laughs> and and that and that makes us and that echoes through our lives and that our imagination has a desiring and I would even say pornographic because it is it's so circling around desire and so circling around our drives and what we long for and what we're repulsed by that it has at least an an aspect of it that's sexual in nature that I would I think that people don't get to opt out you know I'm not saying that Everybody has to focus on it in the way that I'm focusing on it. And yeah, I think yeah. you're saying that too. Like, yeah, well, maybe yeah. this is just not the path for some people to understanding freedom and, and that yeah. sort of thing. And not everybody has to have sex in the same like capacity or what few have anyway, but in the same capacity or way that I have. But, but I also want to say that I think that that's a part of, uh, that's something that everybody struggles with nevertheless, you know? Yeah. So, I mean, in, in my years of working with this theme, um, I would say that the sexual force for some people is expressed in their vehicle in a different way. Uh-huh. It can become a creative process. I've, I've had artist friends that actually they're, when they're writing the depth of their art, the sex disappears because it's the same process being used on a different plane of being for them and so we could say that you know that would really be a conversation when we talk about okay the class of sex are we talking about the actual interrelationship of sex that comes through the genitals Mm -hmm. or are we talking about the creative activity of sexuality that moves through different spheres of the human being that class everyone has to take yes but the class where it comes through the genitals i think that's a pattern because sex does not have to come through the genitals, and that's deeply understood in the realm of the kundalini. Right. So yeah. it, it starts as a patterned human process, and so if we look at this process of taking hold of your own inner life, taking hold of the condition, then you're taking hold of the patterned human body mm-hmm. that is not nothing to do with the community I was brought up with, but the fact that I've got this patterned body through the thousands and thousands of years that has been built to have sex stream through the genitals Mm. instead of streaming through other chakras which would produce very different creative processes right and that's a class everyone has to take Streaming through the genitals is not a class that everybody's engaged with. <laughs> right. <laughs> right, streaming through the genitals 101. I, but I, um, <laughs> I definitely, so, okay, so we do agree then, and I would just say, though, that, like, my move is to say, is to redefine sex as something that is not contained by the sexual act, but, in fact, as something that is everywhere. Yes. So, yes. like, and I do think that that's, that's one of the great things that Freud pointed out that I wish... Steiner would have maybe taken a little more seriously. I understand why he was resistant to Freud, especially at the time that he was, and I've read all yeah, about yeah, that. Yeah. But, um, but he didn't have to call psychoanalysis the sickening, <laughs> disgusting science. Um, anyway, <laughs> but but I do but I do think that uh, that that's something Freud pointed out, which is like, look, we look around, and it is really a, 
opposed to Aristotle in some way, which is why Steiner might have been attenuated too. We look around, we think that we're beings of knowledge, that we're subjects of knowledge. In other words, we learn about something and then we learn about something else and it overturns the thing that we learned and that's how we progress. But actually we're subjects of desire. We want things and then we want other things and then we want other things. We're repulsed by things and we're repulsed by other things. And what he proposed to do with analysis and was probably not too successful, although it's developed over time and I think become more successful, is to say, how do I work with my desires so they flow in and out of each other and open up to new ways of being rather than just being stuck in these patterns that I don't yeah. understand, which filter into my body, my behavior, exactly. you know, all that kind of stuff in such a dysfunctional yeah. way. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I so I would just say like thinking about how sex plays itself out in a lot of things. Like Another scientific story, you know, about the origins of sex is um, bacteria. So now we are in the realm of the living after the viruses. They also have, um, they, they developed their sort of bound membranes, which kept the fragments of genome in them in response to the sun. So the sun was dissolving their membranes on this sort of primordial earth. And they would exchange genomes to keep preserving themselves and try to build their membranes around these like fragments of genomes. So the sa the son was the sexual partner in this like right. at least three partners. So sex was like a menage a trois, like in the <laughs> beginning between these three partners. And so we have a sexual relationship with the son in our history. So we can start looking at all these different examples and not just taking scientific stories and that might be just so stories or, or not that might have some reality views and they're not and say that we can look at the ways that we relate to things in a sexual way. Now, that doesn't have to be the only lens. We can take a lot of different paths through a lot of different chakras, yeah, as yeah. you're saying. But this is one of them yeah. that I think gets ignored too much, you know, that could that could be really taken up to be a teacher for people. Yeah, that's interesting. And it, it does bring in this, you know, the sun and the other thing actually produces something of a third process, right, which is the shadow. Mm. Ah. The, the sun, <laughs> the other thing, uh, but that's that the shadow in the in those terms isn't necessarily a negative because it it says that when two things come together, something new is born, mm. and in that sense, that sexuality, when two things come together, something new is born, mm -hmm. is happening as a force not to do with man, woman, child, but mm. to do with two individualities. And right now in this space between us, something is is coming into being that wasn't in in a living form until we decided to engage in that conversation. Mm -hmm. And there are people that have done a lot of engagement with that around the sexual act. So that they say every time you meet with another being something is coming to form. The sexual act is potentially an incredibly creative process mm. because not only is your sexual relationship to every other being that you have sex with a new form, but every time you have sex with that other being, you're now different. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You're different this morning than you were mm. yesterday, and so therefore your sex with your partner today could be a totally new experience mm -hmm. if we are to be that present to the creative process of two in 
two beans coming together. But we're not that present to even the new sunrise, right? We're just, it's the sun. <laughs> right, right. And yeah. how do we get that mm. present to our sexual connection with our partner that actually every time we have sex is a possibility of something new coming into being? Mm-hmm. And for me, that's where sex is um, a, a level of um, consciousness can mm. totally transform our relationship to the sexual act. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's so there's so much to say there. I think... What I want to talk about is maybe we'll, we'll get back to sex, but let's just sort of talk about that principle real quickly. So again, I'll go back to this philosopher, Gilles Deleuze, who wrote this whole book called Differences Repetition. And he was like, look, I'm, I think I'm the only person that's ever noticed this. It's a real surprise to me, but I have. But of course, it's something Rudolf Steiner said years before, which was basically when I, he, he uses an example of a field of flowers, uh, Steiner does but I'm using it to explain to Lewis as well, which is when I walk through a field of flowers and then I walk through a year later, I add something. I add something to this experience. So I only notice difference. Difference can only arise through repetition. So we think of repetition as static. Oh, this is the same field, but actually difference arises by repeating, right? And then that links into Freud, who said repetition is desire. So the possibility of something new happening of something being added constantly again that has this like sexual yeah. component and and that's what you're talking about as being a transformative uh component is that yeah. does that all make sense Am yeah I, it does yeah. and in a way you've brought in the other picture to the one that we've spoke about a couple of times one is the what the other thing is is all dependent on how we are uh-huh. <laughs> but then what we bring to the other thing changes it yeah so there's this creative process going on you could call it a sexual process but Uh it's a creative process going on all the time and sometimes we um recognize that only in the sphere of sexuality genital to genital on other times we recognize that in all spheres of life and that's an extraordinary thing that there is a relationship Mm. between me and the other thing that means that it is new because there is something that I'm giving to it. But I've also got to have something available to experience the other. Otherwise, the other is just a projection of my own world. So when I look at something, I look at this mic, and if I only put on it what I already know, it teaches me nothing. Mm -hmm. But if I can allow it to actually speak something back to me, I grow from it. But then I also have more to give it. And it's that constant relationship that for me is that creative process. Yeah, it's so fascinating. So let's let me try and take this in a, a little bit of a different direction then. So when you when when I think about masturbation for men at least, it's the combination of either a symbolic image that you're watching in pornography or a, an imagined created image for that you imagine, coupled with a simple repetitive movement that after five to ten minutes produces half the substance that creates life the cheerleading squad as you <laughs> would call it right but like that to me is that to me is crazy so yeah, yeah. when when you do that now i'm not saying that every time people that men masturbate they give something back and in fact i made a joke once that what we should do is 
hook men's arms up to power generators. <laughs> so every time they masturbate, they're giving some sort of power generation back to the city. It would be really great, you know. You really feel like you were giving back all the time, right? But, but um, <laughs> only for people that want it. I'm not not like Matrix style. Just you know. Anyway, but um. I'm, so I'm not saying that you give something back every time, but if you look at how potent the combination between either the symbolic and the repetitive physical or the imagined and the repetitive physical is, it's so profound. And of course, people use that very often to do magic, to have to create something in the moment of orgasm mm -hmm. and then imagine a symbol or whatever to, to use it. So it has a really um, powerful effect. And so I think that what I like to do when I talk to people about sex a lot of times is tell them to use masturbation to explore their boundaries, to explore their imagination, all that kind of stuff. Because it's a, at once it's a very, it could be a very dangerous place, but it's also a very safe place to be able to sort of think your way through. And, and in that way you can use it to give back. So, you know, if two people are say uh, in a relationship and one of them or maybe both of them want to have sex with other people, but they're monogamous and they're committed. I'm also, I often say like, well, just like masturbate with your partner or like talk to your partner while they masturbate and talk about, you know, uh, some other, like being with some other person or a scenario or whatever, because it's safe in that space. And maybe it can just then be the fantasy that you share, or maybe you will decide to not be monogamous and that can lead you into, you know, doing something else. But I think that it, this combination of repetition and difference and the imagined and the physical can really bring a lot to, to people in a lot of ways. Mm. I'm trying to follow the thought entirely. Yeah, it's, yeah, okay, it's good. It's not an easy process to follow <laughs> in the sense that... Um, uh, and in a way, you can. In a way, you're coming back to the schooling that you're in, right? Mm. And the schooling is you bring everything back to the sex, mm -hmm. and that is not only your own training, but it's also what you give the world. You mm. bring it back to the sex, mm -hmm. but because that's not my schooling, even though I work in that realm, my actual uh, class that I take mm -hmm. is to do with inner development so I, I'm trying to assess what you're saying and take it to the point of actually how does that support the evolution of the individual mm. in the inner development way right. and you know there's a lot of potential trappings in the way that you express it mm -hmm. because if I um, if I let that certain aspects of my being run the show without inquiring to who those uh, what their nature is then I could be giving re uh, rain mm -hmm. to um, parts of myself that are not even um, me. Right. Those pattern parts, those conditioned parts. And we, we like to think yeah. that um, we're only conditioned in a suppressive way around sexuality. But of course we're not. We can be conditioned in other ways as well. Um you know, we can be conditioned that, for instance, that as a man you need to masturbate. Mm -hmm. Well, actually, that's not the case for everybody. Mm -hmm, it's mm -hmm. fascinating for me to look to have worked with hundreds of cases over the years and to find the extraordinary variety of expression of truth that people have around it. What I struggle with is when there is no um, inquiry right. to what's true for them. 
but they're just living out a borrowed picture. And you're not saying, just to clarify for the people that are listening, you're not saying, oh, well, the people that don't need to masturbate are, are like... Or not all men need to masturbate, so they should just do that like no fap movement thing where they just don't masturbate to porn for 30, 60, 90 days to see like all their like because that just becomes another that becomes another unreflective default, right? And so That's I mean, right. the the way I'm talking about it, say when I'm talking about two people masturbating and talking about having sex with other people, like in a couple is for a lot of people that inherited, I mean, really the default in Western culture is to have a monogamous relationship with uh-huh. your partner. And so many people find themselves really unhappy in that. Yeah. So it's more to just sort of rupture the mm-hmm. rupture the uh, the field of possibilities, not to replace monogamy with non-monogamy. Mm. Um, although maybe that's appropriate mm-hmm. for some people. Exactly. And that's what I try, when people say, well, what do you think about open relationships? I say, well, most people are in open relationships because they're, afraid of uh commitment and most people are in monogamous relationships because they're insecure mm-hmm. it's it would be great if we chose which one that exactly. we really wanted could we really choose yes and can you and how how do you know that you're choosing and so that's sort of i'm talking about yeah. more just puncturing the things that are so tightly constricted around us you know yeah. um and then maybe choosing it anyway yeah you know like i I think that the wedding ring is like the most popular and public sex toy of them all. Like here's this thing I wear out in the public. That's a sign of my total like binding to this person, this other person. Don't look at anybody. Don't think about anybody else. Don't have sex with anybody else. Like it's a total like BDSM toy, like around people's finger, which is fine if that's how you see it. Like, well, I've decided to have this kind of sexual encounter which is a sexual encounter as well as all the other things that it is and represents and all the other kinds of things. I have decided to have this kind of perversity in a way with this other person. And that's my choice. That's actually what I want, you know, in my life. That would be great if that Mm -hmm. awareness was brought Mm -hmm. to it, you know. And again, I know it doesn't have to be sexual. It doesn't have to be expressed to the genitals or as you're saying, but you see what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And of course, different cultures would say that the, the that ring does not actually mean that. Right, right. In yeah. France, it does not mean that. Yeah. Yes. Right. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so we, we mm. you know, that's the interesting thing. What does it? What What do these symbols mean for us? Because mm-hmm. they can mean very different things. Um, yeah. Yeah, and so uh, just to pick up on one of the things you were talking about before too, you know, people will often ask me, like, how do you do sex magic, right? And mm-hmm. I never do mm-hmm. sex magic. I say, well, sex is magic. You don't have to do sex magic. You mm-hmm. just have to become aware of what's happening mm-hmm. when you have sex. But I have a question for you about that. Like, why is this so powerful? Like, why is it that mm-hmm. in our lives, aside from the cultural repression, suppression, and oppression, as you're saying, is not the only thing that's at play here, why is this act such a powerful act? Um, and I know you said before, well, this nothing else can come out of it. But there's something also just when you have sex, sometimes it can be totally boring and insignificant and not really give. But sometimes like the longing for it is so profound and you want to do it. And that has a spiritual power there. Yeah, yeah. Well, it is that cr- there is a creative force. There is absolutely a potent force that I don't think we have begun to understand we understand Mm. it in a very limited way Mm -hmm. Um, but I think it is that that it can 
that desire that comes through this um, deep need of the physicality is a force that can create many things. And so I do think that that's why um, people want to tame it, want to control it, and in a certain way want to keep a lid on it. However, I will say again, I don't think it's always expressed for everybody through the genitals. Mm. It can be expressed in other ways. But without desire, what would we create in the future? You know, if we consider the sense-born world, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, it's in a way the desire for something, not necessarily the desire for sexual release, but the desire that allows us to kind of create the evolving forms that we see in the outer world. Um, even if it's the desire, for instance, to cure something, the desire to know something, there is that uh, process. And although the Buddhists say maybe um, that statement that says uh, to have only one desire and that is to be desireless, mm. you're still using desire. Right. <laughs> which is so funny because that's the Lacanian psychoanalytic line, which is like, you know, don't give way to your desire. And what he's very clever and he always phrases things that have a double meaning it can mean like you must always follow your desire don't give up on it you know and then the other is like don't ever give way to it you know but i think that that's it's always it's always a step ahead of you and so like the the idea is can i want my wanting can i want my wanting not do i get to have what i want but can i actually want the desire forces themselves you know and that's an honoring of you know, whatever those are. I know Rudolf Steiner drew like a, a a diagram, one of his many, to me, often incomprehensible blackboard drawings of desire sort of and the way it functioned the human being. Do you, are you familiar with that? Like, can, can you talk about the actual force of desire? And There's a few aspects to it. On one hand, these talking about in the inner world, we have more than one kind of process at work. So in one school, we call it the um, instinctual mind, you know, the mind. In the anthroposophical school, we call it the sentient soul. Mm. And as a sentient being, so for instance, you tickle the inside of your arm, your sentient being allows you to experience it. Mm. But do I like it or not like it? Do I want it Mm. or not want it? That's the sentient soul or the instinctual mind. And that's the body internal inner life that deals with desire we also have the intellectual or reasoning mind you Mm -hmm. know the part of us that can think clearly through sequence of thought processes so the intellectual soul or the reasoning mind is different than the sentient soul or the instinctual mind Mm -hmm. and it's in this part of the inner world where desire lives there's also the consciousness soul or the discerning mind so the consciousness soul is not the part that reasons, it's not the part that desires, wants, likes, dislikes, but it's the part that kind of has this recognition, mm. I know this is right for me. Not because I desire it, not because I've worked it out, but this just, I know, I recognise mm. this is the thing I need to do, the person I need to be with, the job I need to take. Mm. And that's fascinating that our inner world is threefold it's not just a desire world the intellectual reasoning mind and the discerning mind work alongside this instinctual mind Mm -hmm. so when he talks about the realm of desire he's talking about the realm of which the sentient soul um is at work 
And so the reason why we could say that it is so strongly connected to our vehicle is because the sentient soul links straight into the body. The intellectual soul actually isn't directed into the bodily processes in quite the same way. So that's why desire and the body-bound experience are so intimately linked. Mm, mm, mm -hmm. The consciousness soul the part that knows that uh -huh. links straight into our spiritual body uh -huh. and so uh -huh. you see these two hmm. parts the spiritual body the physical body and how the soul links into them in totally different ways mm -hmm. allowing us to have both a physical and spiritual life mm -hmm. to be physical spiritual beings yeah and so it's interesting because the more we struggle with the desire that's bound with the physical body and struggle with the desire that's the intellectual is that what you were saying the I, I forget that yeah. yeah the the consciousness so would would the 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 desire and the knowing are just like really just they're seamless you know yeah the more we struggle at these other levels it opens up and it, it, it if we struggle in a in, in a in a genuine way, a, yes, a, a yes. real struggle, um, that it opens up the capacity, I think, of that consciousness soul to to recognize the, that knowing. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. And that is that when that voice is at work in your life, you know <laughs> that it is not prescribed by anything outside of you. Mm -hmm. you. You know, your desire can be inscribed upon by the culture by the yes. shoulds the shouldn'ts but that knowing that's not prescribed and so to to find a, that voice that's a, that can be a guide your your one and only guide in a way because it doesn't come from um being indoctrinated it comes from the point of freedom which is your spiritual being as the science said we can really only become free in the spirit Right, right. Yeah, it's so interesting because, like, had someone said to me before I started having the experiences of knowing, well, you just know, right? Yeah, that's right. how people describe it. And right, that's right. how I was thinking, well, I would guess I would describe it that way. You just you just know. It's really frustrating because there's times I'd be like, well, do I just know this time or do I not? And it mm -hmm. actually is just, like, you don't have that question. Yeah. You just know. And, um, you know, I had this guest on... The show Tim Kinsella, who is a he's a musician um, and he has a lot of sort of occult leanings here and there. But one of the lyrics of his songs is, I know what I have to do and do it, but I don't know what it is until it's done. And it's that kind of knowing. Mm -hmm. It's not even it's not even like caring. Ugh, caring is not the right word, but you just don't. You, it, there, there's no idea of like, well, what's going to happen if I do this? It's just like, okay, yeah, I do mm -hmm. this. I yeah. do this. And that was yeah. my feeling moving to Ireland, for example. Mm. And I think actually yours too, right? Yeah. That yeah. it's just this idea of, I've got to do this. Okay. And it, it always bears itself out. It might bear strange results, yes. you know, but it still is very apparent, you know. Yeah, and that's an extraordinary thing that in in our own inner world we can have the part that knows, and yet still the intellectual reasoning mind is trying to work it out all the time, <laughs> and yeah. it may even go up against your desire. Yes, sometimes it's yeah. with your desire, and then it's easy. 
Uh But when the knowing is against your desire, that's when life comes complex. Mm -hmm. But again, you know, we're far more complex than I think we have allowed ourselves to be. But something that's simple about it, I love Swedenborg, Emanuel Swedenborg, the mystic, um, I'll put some information about him in the show notes, but he, I mean, he describes it so peacefully. He just says, like, look, the angels never give you a message that hurts or that scares you or that frightens you. If they, if that's it, then you know it's not the angels. And then also Lorna Byrne, this Irish mystic hero who says she sees angels and talks to angels all the time. She says a very similar thing. She's just like, they just give you the message yeah. and the knowing and you know what you're meant to do. And that's it. It's, it's not as if, uh, it there isn't there isn't any there isn't really any fear really like you might have that moment of knowing and then experience some intellectual doubt well is it really but yeah. then as soon as you sort of go back into the knowing Absolutely. place you're like oh that's just yeah that's just nothing Absolutely. and you and it's easy to sort of like let it go away it might rise up again but it's easy to sort of let Absolutely. it go away none of the sort of elementals can assault what you and your angel know together absolutely you know? yeah and that that interesting that that is really that it's like an iron rod of knowing and uh-huh. it gives you that sense of um courage too yeah in the face uh-huh. of the fact that it might not make sense to the world or uh-huh. to other parts of your own self uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> um well i think we're kind of getting towards the end here and uh also i'm there, there's some people walking above so I don't know if anybody can hear that while it's going on but if you hear all those creakings Lisa and I aren't shifting in our seats um, restlessly <laughs> but I do want to say that you know it's a, one of the things that's really great about talking to you so is you and I both have the same sort of spiritual current and tradition we're working in with some some differences you know as sure but we we pretty much meet you know through anthroposophy through Rudolf Steiner's work um, through Christian uh, occultism, Christian esotericism. And I have talked to other anthroposophists about sex, and I'm not trying to gossip, but I want to try to make a point. You know, one of them said, when I tried to talk to him about it, this sort of well-known anthroposophist, well, you have to think about why all the gay people died of AIDS, right? This is like what he said to me, and I was just, what are you talking about? And I you know, had another one just also, she was very resistant, you know. Oh, you're the pornographer. That's what she, you know, said to me. And this kind of shock and this inability to deal, even as you look into all the other mysteries, this question of sex still really throws people. Mm-hmm. It really messes with people. And um, I find that really fascinating that people can get very developed in a spiritual way and mm-hmm. become very conscious and clear about so many aspects. And yet this unilluminated underworld is somewhere, some this place that they're either afraid to go or think that they don't need to go because the inheritance of the social is so strong. Mm-hmm. It's so intense. So to me, that indicates that there's a really great counterforce in our time. I mean, in all times, really, if you look at it, but really... But especially in our time, there's a really profound counterforce that really obscures even the most spiritually inclined people's uh, ability to contend with and deal with this question of sex. They might 
know a bit about sexuality, but that sex is a different question, you know? Mm. And I wonder, I wonder what that is or if you have thoughts on that. Look, I mean, it's hard to say why it might live in someone in that way. I think that that statement is quite an interesting statement. You, you have to wonder why all of the sure. gay people... Over, uh, because I think that, that, that question is a fantastic question. But for me, it would not have anything to do with, aren't they bad? Right. But rather, right. <laughs> what service? Because, you know, you can do it in any kind of way of thinking about that question. Right. Like you're saying, what is the, what is the spiritual um, significance of this group of people dying at this time? Yes. Which is a completely different exactly. question and a completely different presentation of what that might have been there in what he was saying. But it was like one of the first things he said to me That's when right. I started talking about sex. So yeah, yeah, it was yeah. like, we did not jump from me asking you about <laughs> sexuality right. to you talking about gay people dying. No, that's right. Yeah. But I would ask the question, <laughs> is there any usefulness for somebody else to maintain an oppositional point of view? Mm-hmm. Because what I've found with working with, for instance, young people around sexuality, if we imagine that there mm. is a certain way of seeing sex that's presented to somebody. Um, now, it could be that they're presented with a lot of uh, pornography as, a, as their main sex education. And if they are, then I want to say, how would I offer you another point of view? Not because that other point of view is right, but that between the, that mm-hmm. picture and this picture, yeah. you can find yourself which awakens a greater freedom it's the same then, thing I was saying with the monogamy and the... Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. and I think that if somebody has got a, a picture that is, um, it, you know, within anthroposophy, of course, there's people that have very conflicting points of view. That's the wonderful things about it. It allows for that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We're not all meant to be thinking on the same team, but rather trying to take the thought process that we have forward. How can we develop ourselves more, uh, more strongly? So what would be the usefulness of someone having such an opposite point of view? Is there a usefulness? Because in the polarity, I find something new can come about. Mm-hmm. If everyone had exactly the same point of view, the the idea that there would be a creative process is, becomes more limited. Mm-hmm. And so I, you know, I understand it is... It, it, it sounds very erroneous in our age and it, it needs to be questioned. And I would say, given where you stand with it and you can't actually unpick someone else's thinking, I would say, actually, how would I use this kind of oppositional force right. to to deepen a creative process? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's a, a difficult uh, thing when you, you know, you like to, we like to belong today. We like to think that anthroposophists, for instance, will be on the same team. But actually, we're <laughs> not in an age of belonging. Right. We're in an age of individualization, mm. maturation, so that mm. we can get along with people that actually have completely conflicting points of view. Right, which is why, I mean, and we're not going to have time to get into this, but why when we talk about identity politics, you can see people scrambling for uh, the strength and certitude of belonging, yeah. which... I think belonging to certain identities, it can really reveal a lot to you and has a lot of value and has, yeah. and actually has done a lot of good things in the world as well. But the pitfalls and the difficulties and the dangers of it are in, in, in reinforcing ways of belonging that actually erode the possibility to self-actualize, you know? Absolutely. Um, so, but, but I guess, but I was talking about not the opposition 
of talking to someone who has not developed the um, the has not developed in the same way or maybe just not developed a view of sex that allows them to want to think about it deeply and confront it in themselves and go through that exploratory path that's not just some cognitive dissonance between sex and every other spiritual thing they've done. I'm saying a counter, a, a spiritual being counterforce that occludes the ability to go there. There's something, mm-hmm. there's, there's something of that mm-hmm. there in the way that there's an, an occluding force and a spiritual beingness that stops us from engaging with our spiritual selves, you know, uh, and, and spiritual, uh, uh, understanding and encounters and all, all those sorts of things. I think that there's there's a being also that is invested in us not going through this. And I didn't know if you had any thoughts on that or not. Well, I think I would bring it back to that picture that I brought earlier about the going through the levels of our being. If one tries to address sexuality before there's a certain level of uh, awakening, mm. it has a possibility of um, throwing a distraction to the path. Mm-hmm. If you address sexuality with a, once you have a certain level of awakening, then it has a different uh, echo back in its transformative capacity. Mm-hmm. And so this is one of the reasons why in the esoteric work mm-hmm. there was always a, a kind of um, oath not to reveal something to somebody that could not actually utilise right. the knowledge uh-huh. before they were ready for it because... The very what can be wisdom to one human being can be a diversion to another at a certain point, right. and so you know this is why I always say where you are in yourself totally cha- change, changes, as you said very clearly, the experience that you're having, um, and that is an extraordinary thing to to hear you and to have spoke to you several times now about how you're able to get the most out of this schooling that you're in Mm -hmm. would everybody get the most out of it it has to be their path and has to be the right form to be able to do that and I think for some people they they can't go there for one reason or another yeah well the way you're saying it too so I'm just imagining as you sort of engage with this is maybe not the right image but let's say each chakra in your body is a path okay it's a spiritual path that has its own pitfalls and differences and all that kind of stuff. So let's say as you sort of are about to enter into the sexual chakra path, there's a sphinx there. And if you don't know the riddle, you get consumed, right? If you don't know the answer to the riddle, you get consumed, right? So that's maybe the counterforce in part is that each of these pathways have guardians that you need to know the answer to the riddle to be able to progress. But there, there may, I think that, my inclination is that there's also something that's not just related to the path, but is actually invested in being a counterforce to us proceeding down that path. But I'll develop that over time and we can talk about it in the future. But then my hope always is, okay, well, if I know the answer to the riddle, I can just share that with other people. So again, I've said this before, but so that Traversing that path is more available to yeah. others, especially for those that are already on it, Absolutely. who are suffering exactly. in it, or 
who are on it and excited about it, but kind of like, I don't really, you know, like, I don't exactly know what's going on or, um, you know, find themselves on it in, in, one, in one way or another. So, um, yeah. Well, I think, uh, yeah. yeah, I definitely think that's your journey and it's really great to have somebody <laughs> doing that work. Thanks. Yeah. Um, this is awesome. I would love to have you on again to talk about all the other work you do as well because um, there's tons of it out there and I know that you have a book coming out about uh, addiction substance abuse and how that relates to the spirit and um, and have written a lot about technology and and actually I have those two things sort of weave in and out of each other so um, let's do this again wonderful okay <laughs> thank you so much Thanks, and um everybody you can check out uh lisa's information i'll put it all in the show notes so uh thank you so much for listening bye